0: If you are just starting your business and you have call reluctance, I don't care what the best time of the day is if you're not going to make the calls. And then when you first start your business, set yourself up for success and just
1: go ahead and make your calls first thing in the morning. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Zachary Beach. Zach is a real estate investor and son-in-law of Chris Prefontaine, who we had on the show back on episode 116. In this episode, Zach will tell us how to do a massive amount of deals at a young age, as well as go over the scripts to use when talking to sellers on the phone. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy! All right, Zachary, welcome to the show. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do.
0: Yeah, sure. I appreciate you having me on. I'm a real estate investor, but also a real estate investment coach. I help people build and scale their businesses. It tends to be focused on a very particular niche in real estate. We actually buy and sell on terms. That simply means that we don't use our own cash, credit, or investors' money, and definitely not banks. So our model, we tend to be able to buy property with little to no money down and create long terms. That way we can not only create cash now. We can create cash monthly and create wealth on the back end as well. Again, with uh, very little risk involved.
1: Perfect. And uh, for everyone that's listening, Zachary is actually the son-in-law of Chris Prefontaine, who was on a show back on episode 116. So if you want to learn more about buying properties on terms, go ahead and check out that episode number 116. So Zachary, do you want to go back and tell us how do you even get into real estate investing? Yeah, that's a great,
0: that's a great question. It's been interesting. So I was actually talking about, I was doing some YouTube videos today and I was saying how I was, I almost dropped out of high school. I was mediocre in college and then I had no direction when I got out of college. I ended up being a bartender and personal trainer for almost five years. And it wasn't until I got so, I don't know, beat down by the industry because as you can imagine, bartending, you're up late at night and personal training, you're up really early in the morning. So that life gets a little hectic and there's really no end in sight. Uh, at least from my perspective i know there's some successful people that that do both of those so at that time i was about 24 years old and i went to my father-in-law chris who you alluded to who had a real estate business and i said hey i don't know if i'm going to like real estate but uh, i'm looking for something better than what i'm doing right now so on top of those two other gigs that i was doing i just started making outbound calls to start getting myself and get my feet wet in real estate so again zero experience in real estate and then after about 6 months I ended up joining the family business, which I'm sure people are out there thinking, like, okay, well, you're about to join your father-in-law's business that's probably got a nice little cushy salary and all of that as well. If you only knew him, which go back and listen to that episode, we basically all ate what we killed. So each and every one of us were splitting, you know, pieces of each deal. So when I was going into real estate, I didn't have any bridge. It was basically all in. So at that point in time I jumped all into real estate and three years later you know, I completed well over 100 deals now. So zero to 100 deals, just about to turn 29 at this stage of the game. So I don't say in any way to brag. I said that if anybody's out there listening and they have zero experience in real estate, then as long as you can follow a program and put your head down and work hard, then you can certainly be successful in this real estate business. If I was able to get some success, then you can as well.
1: Awesome. That's a pretty inspiring story to go from, you know, zero to 100 deals and Less than three years. Yeah, I've been in the business for about four years now. I've only done probably less than 10 deals total. So what was your father-in-law having you do when you said, Hey, I want to get into real estate investing business? Teach me.
0: Yeah. You start with the bottom of the barrel good job, right? It's like you're you're almost in a VA type position. And that's how we teach some people how to build and scale their businesses. Once you as a solopreneur decide to start scaling, you either bring in virtual assistants or somebody that's willing to take that virtual assistant type position, which is making outbound calls. A lot of our business comes from making outbound calls either to expired listings or to for sale by owners or for rent by owners. So that's what I was doing. I was just making outbound calls. At one point in time, I was making outbound calls for 50 to 60 hours a week because at that time when I came in or slightly after I came in, we were doing between like four and 10 deals a month. So we need to accumulate an awful lot of leads in order to do that. So I was one of the people at the forefront. So just spending a heck of a lot of time on the phone. And then once I got really good at my scripts and started understanding more and more of the process and understanding more and more of how to structure the deals, then I would slowly take more and more responsibility. So go from making outbound calls to now I'm making the follow-up calls and finding out more motivation and digging deeper and finding out the actual challenges and Trying to provide solutions, then eventually going on the appointments, and then eventually taking it all the way to the end where I'm negotiating the deals and getting properties under contract. Even today, I primarily work with the sellers, and my brother-in-law Nick, he primarily works with the buyers. So I get all the properties under contract, and he goes and sells them.
1: Nice. What kind of scripts are you using? Like, was it from Chris? He just gave you something that you work with.
0: Yeah. So I think it was a bit of mismatch originally of other mentors that that we were following and other people that we've worked with. So we had their script. And then as I was making 60 plus hours worth of calls, I started to create my own script. I started to figure out what was working and what wasn't working. Because when you're spending that much time in the trenches, you start to think of like, how you can better this. So eventually, I started writing my own scripts. And those are the scripts that we provide to our associates or our students from the coaching side of the business. So at first, it was just somebody else's script. And eventually, we turned them into our scripts and made more and more tweaks until we got things right. When you make that many calls too, it gives you the time to experiment. So you you have one call, you ask one question one way, and the next call, you ask the question the next way, and you see how they respond and see how good the end result is. And then from there, you write it down and keep it.
1: Makes sense. And how'd you get over the initial fear of rejection? You know, you're cold calling people who don't even know their house is for sale. And they're like, why are you calling me?
0: Yeah, I think call reluctance is a fear that everybody has. In my opinion, it just comes with doing. It's just failing forward and having the mindset that you have to be okay with being uncomfortable. So like being okay with not being okay and still making that call. I'm a huge fan of either eating the frog, as they say, is getting the hard things done in the morning. I'm a huge believer in schedule and making sure that your schedule sets you up for success. So I would always do my calls first thing in the morning because as they say, fear grows with time. So if I was going to plan on making calls in the afternoon, by the time I got to those calls, I wasn't making them. So the first thing in the morning, I would get up and I would start making outbound calls. And then eventually it just got to a point where it's part of the business, right? And then, because if that's one of your key drivers in order to produce your lifestyle or to produce you know, the ability to buy a new car or buy a house or feed yourself or feed your family... I mean, if you can attach, eventually I attached my why to making those up on calls. So eventually those up on calls became nothing, right? It's just another day in the life. So real important. If you have call reluctance, I would suggest that you attach your why and your reasons on why you're doing it to stack the benefits of making those calls. That way you don't allow that fear to weigh you down.
1: Yeah, makes sense. I mean, someone was saying that like drinking black coffee and wake up early in the morning and door knocking is not hard you know having to deal with a family member who's going through like a medical injury or like you know cancer or something like that that's hard right cold calling people is not hard so you can get over it pretty quickly if you have a big enough fly
0: yeah i don't know if uh, you out there in the audience you have kids or a wife or you know a family but i always tell my wife that she has the hard job she's the one that stays at home with the kids i have the easy job i get to do real estate i get to do coaching i get to work business i mean that's easy. It's you know exactly what you said. If you can't provide for your family, now those are hard things that you have to swallow. So, the difference between having a really good lifestyle and making a phone call, I mean, I'll make the phone call all day long.
1: That's right. And for making all those phone calls, have you found that one time of day is you know better versus like another time of day? So, when I
0: teach our students I say two things because it's it's real important. Yes, there is a best time of day to make calls. But as I was just alluding to in the last section, which the best time of day, it tends to be like in the afternoon from like four to seven because people are getting home from work. It's more likely you're going to get a hold of them. And it tends to be better towards the end of the week because people have gotten over the hump of the Monday, Tuesday. And now they're willing to make now they're willing to talk with you more. They have a better attitude. And another great day is Saturdays between, say, like 10 and 1 in the morning to the afternoon. But if you are just starting your business and you have call reluctance, I don't care what the best time of the day is if you're not gonna make the calls. So when you first start your business, set yourself up for success and just go ahead and make your calls first thing in the morning, especially if that's a problem for you. But if you're in a mode where now you're trying to be super efficient, well, then your best bet is to make phone calls in the afternoon is at least what I've found through experience. That way you're getting a hold of the most people for the most outbound calls you're
1: making. And typically when you make those cold calls, what are you saying to the person that picks up the phone?
0: I like to base it on like a three-step process, which is like, make sure you get a proper introduction and then make sure that you get confirmation. So introduction, confirmation, you're speaking with the right person, and then get permission to ask them questions. Because within real estate, we're in the people business, but most importantly, we're in the business where we are solving problems, especially with creative financing, which is what my family and I do. So- in order to solve somebody's problem through creative financing, you need to really be able to get past surface level motivation. And you also need to know a heck of a lot more about the financials of the property in order to determine whether or not this is a good deal for you and for them. So getting permission to ask certain questions, although they may be you know, difficult to ask, especially when you first get started, it's really important that you still do so. Or you're not going to be able to craft up deals. So just for example, I mean, it just sounds something like, "Hi, this is Zach Beach. I was looking for the owner of blank. I'm just calling because I'm interested in buying a property in the area. Do I have the correct person?" So you've you've introduced yourself, made sure that they know that you're looking to buy a property in the area. Then secondly, am I speaking with the owner of blank? Getting confirmation. Worst thing that could happen, and I've done it plenty of times, is you're speaking with the wrong person for like 25 minutes, and they're like, "Oh." actually, that's my brother's house. Why don't I go get him? So then you get confirmation. Then next I say, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions in order to determine whether or not this is a good fit for me to buy? It's probably a good fit for me to buy. And then from there, I start going into my scripted questions that rely heavily around you know, motivation, around feedback, if the property was on the market or not, or if it's on the market right now, what they're getting from feedback from other buyers. And then around the financials, like knowing, you know, the mortgage balance, if there is one, monthly payment, you know, I start to get into the term side of the business at that stage and then just finish through my questions. And at that point in time, through the end of the call, we really just decide whether or not it makes sense to take the next step or not.
1: Cool. I mean, it sounds so smooth. Like when I ask them, like when I call people, usually I'm like, hi, is this blah, blah, blah? And they say, yes. And you have to wait multiple times. It gets really awkward and you ask a lot of questions. And at the time, you're kind of like, you ask me too many questions. You're annoying and they want to hang up on you.
0: I've been there. Trust me. I totally get it. The importance is, which was number one that I went over, which is give a proper introduction. Anytime that I've been help out, a student of ours or within myself that we battled, meaning towards the end of what the end result was, what you just said, which was, why are you asking me all these questions? is because I didn't give them enough context of who I was and why I was calling. So that's why I always insert those little words through our business, which is like, I introduce myself in why I'm calling. Like, hey, I'm calling for blank. I'm looking to buy a property in the area. Am I speaking with the correct person? So they know you've set the guidelines and the tone for who you are and then made sure who you're talking to. And then lastly, you get permission, which is most important to ask them questions because now they can't, from that standpoint, as soon as you start asking questions, they've already confirmed that they're open to you asking them. So it's very unlikely they're going to start giving you any, you're going to have to deal with any, you know, bad feedback.
1: Yeah. So in the very beginning of your career, you were doing these outbound cold calls. And now I guess you're actually at the table doing the final negotiations. What kind of projects do you actually do? Like you want to give an example of some of the deals you've done in the past? Yeah. So we primarily work on single family homes, work
0: primarily with the seller themselves. We've done some multifamilies, but what most important is we buy property a very specific way, which is either through a lease purchase, owner financing, or buying the property subject to the existing loan. A lease purchase, pretty simple. Just means that you and the seller agree upon a price. Assuming they have a mortgage, you're then gonna take over any and all responsibilities of that mortgage, including the mortgage payment, the taxes, the insurance, any and all future repairs, any and all responsibilities. And then you and the seller will agree upon a definitive end date in the future. And then on or before that end date, you're then going to cast them out. So these are deals where we're structuring terms at the beginning, longer term deals, we handle all responsibilities. What that does from that standpoint is that allows you to then go take it to your market, which our market of buyers are people that are just outside of financeability and they just need a little time in order to qualify. So they tend to fall into two categories. Someone who's self-employed and need time for seasoning. So banks, what they call seasoning, which means they need to show that they make X amount of money for a period of time in order for them to get financing. Or number two is somebody that had a legitimate hiccup in their credit. So again, that just means they need more time, so they need to go through some credit cycles in order to improve their credit before they go get financing. And once we have that buyer, this is why it's called a sandwich lease, is because you have the seller, you have you, the investor, and then you have the buyer. So what you're able to do is, because you tie up the property for a certain price uh, with your seller, you can then sell it to your buyer for a higher price. So you're increasing the premium there. And then that's how you're able to craft up your three paydays is what we call that, which are the non-refundable deposit that you get from your buyer before they move in the property. Then you get your pay number two, which is your spread every month. So the difference between what you have to pay your seller or the mortgage lender or the bank and what you can collect from your buyer, so it tends to be higher. And then pay number three is when the buyer actually goes and gets their own financing You get cashed out. So pay number three consists of the principal paydown that you've been receiving through a mortgage because you're going to be making the mortgage payment. You're going to be receiving that principal paydown and then also any additional premium that you have left over. That's what we call them, the three paydays. So you're creating cash now, monthly, and then you're able to create some back-end wealth because you're getting that principal paydown, which you know a long-term deal, you get a property that has $500 principal paydown coming off the mortgage every month six grand a year, it just begins to really add up on the back ends. And that way, eventually, as a real estate investor, you can start stepping off the treadmill because you don't have to go accumulate more and more deals because you have these deals that are lasting years and years and years that are paying you throughout the process.
1: Right. And it's basically a passive income stream without you having to risk your own capital.
0: That's 100%. We had our recent event in September So we host two events a year. And our last one, we had about 200 people in the room, And we had everybody stand up and we asked them, you know, how much money they put down on these types of deals. At our events, uh, we're using controlling, I would say in the room is controlling probably 30 plus million dollars in the room with 200 people. Our associates alone and us typically are carrying about 22 to 25 million dollars worth of property are controlling. And there's probably two people in the room that stood up that said they spent more than $500 on a property as far as a down payment. And a lot of those were came from they've rolled in profits from another deal. So once you get a bunch of deals going on, now you get a property that's cashing out. Well, now you have some additional capital that you've created from your deals that you can go ahead and invest in some of these. Because there are a lot of good deals out there where you can put some money down, especially if you're buying them owner financing or buying them subject to the existing loan, you know, so then you can start investing into new deals. But your original deals, you go ahead and you don't put any money down.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you need a custom contract for these kind of creative deals, or can you just use a typical realtor's purchasing sales agreement?
0: You definitely want to use a custom contract. We've spent tens of thousands of dollars on our contracts. Uh, We actually make them available for anyone that goes to our QLS home study course program. All of our contracts are in there. Now, the contracts that we use on a day-to-day basis and our QLS home study course is virtual. It's online and is constantly updated. But we're in Mass, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Now, if you're in California, I always recommend you take the contracts and you go bring them to your own attorney. In my opinion, they're probably 80 to 90% done. So you just got to make sure that there's any certain nuances that maybe California has that Massachusetts or Rhode Island doesn't have that needs to be up within that contract.
1: And then once you have this custom contract and you bring it to a tile company, does everything just go you know, normally or is there some hiccups there as well that you need a custom or you need a specific tile company to work with?
0: You're definitely going to want to build a relationship with some title companies. I'm in an attorney state. But remember, you're not going to be going to it when we're doing a lease purchase agreement. The closing where the title actually transfers is not to the end of the agreement. So that is when your end buyer goes and gets their financing and they buy directly from the seller. So typically what we'll see is we may need to put together a new purchase and sale agreement depending upon who's going to be closing out the deal. Or it's a title company or an attorney but we have all the information from that lease purchase original agreement that we can add in there. Now, some title companies you know, could understand it completely. We've done it plenty of times in Arizona, but it 100% depends on who's going to be closing out the deal.
1: If title doesn't switch over until after they basically refinance and buy out the old seller, is there any risk of the seller coming back and saying, "Hey, I actually own this property and all these payments were not legit?
0: Well, no, because you have a legitimate agreement that states that you have 100% control of the property because you have a lease option. So anytime you have an option on a property that's a contractual agreement that says that you're buying this property, whether it be in 10 years from now, you have the option to buy it. Now, what you do to protect yourself is you cloud the title and you either file a memorandum depending on the state or a notice of option, which basically states which the seller has to sign and get notarized. Well, it doesn't allow the seller to go sell to their uncle during the middle of the process.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Put a cloud on title so that you protect yourself and the contract.
0: Yeah, you're always notified. And then we cover lease options or a lease purchase, depending on what you want, who you're speaking with. But the other options too, I mean, you can buy owner financing or seller financing. That's when the title would transfer at the beginning. Contract's different though. We're dealing with a purchase and sale agreement. We tend to structure principal only payments on properties. We're not paying any interest on property short term, but we've, of course, crafted up plenty of deals where we paid interest, but now you're talking about a lot longer terms. And then the last one would be buying subject to the existing loan, which means that you're closing on the property, acknowledging that there's a mortgage on it already. So you're contractually obligated to continue to make those payments, but then you hold title, mortgage still stays in that seller's name until one day when you pay off the rest of the mortgage.
1: So what do you do when your potential seller actually wants cash today and is not really interested in the whole creative financing and you know, long-term process?
0: It depends on how much cash they want. It also depends on where you are in your real estate business, uh, and it depends on the deal. But if you're just getting started, then that's probably not the best seller that you're going to be working with, and it comes at Because if you're looking for a lease purchase agreement or owner financing with little to no money down, and the seller says they need money well, then it's more than likely not going to be a great deal right now for you. The truth is, in all honesty, I mean, most people don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to sell my property and owner financing or a lease purchase or subject to the existing loan. They say, I want to close quickly. I want, you know, close in 30 days. I want money down. I want all my money, cash, like as quickly as possible. But it doesn't really matter all the time what they want. It's really what they need. And that's why I said at the beginning, which is you got to spend a lot of time on motivation because, of course, Everybody wants that. Now, one of our scripts, which is 100% true, is 99% of the people I buy from want a traditional sale because it's extremely true, but it's not always possible, especially if a seller has an unrealistic price in mind. Well, we can tend to pay a higher price compared to the traditional market if we get the right terms. Or you know, So there, there's a number of different facets out there on how even though they want their money down now, you, know, you can still be the solution for them if you're able to be the solution for that need.
1: Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you that same question. Like, why would someone want to sell their house on terms? What is a typical profile of the person who does sell their house in this creative fashion?
0: Yeah, I would say it tends to fall into a couple different categories. Uh, Number one, the seller wants to net the most profit, right? There's no realtors involved. You're not paying commissions. You can even, if you want, negotiate and pay the closing costs. So they're saving tens of thousands of dollars there and as we both know it's unrealistic that people are going to get 100% of their asking price they probably get closer to like 90 to 95% of their asking price if they're buying from you know a traditional buyer and that's going to get their loan now so you're talking about some significant change in profit if somebody's willing to wait so somebody needs to be in a financial position under the circumstance that they're able to wait because if they can't wait for their money then they're going to dump their price in order to get it done somebody else would be somebody again owner financing Status where somebody's looking again to maximize their return owns a, sec- a separate property willing to take monthly payments with a balloon because you're able to especially on the owner financing deals pay a premium so it really comes down to financial stability and the ability to wait which could be a second home you know they could have inherited the property there's a number of different circumstances there and then if you go completely on the flip side coin which is somebody that needs debt relief or mortgage relief. Because you can take over their property pretty quickly and begin to make and be able to make their payments, whether it buying it subject to the existing loan where you're taking title and making their payments. That tends to happen if somebody's trying to sell for roughly what they owe, and if they go to sell with a, a realtor, they're coming out of pocket, either for realtor commissions or for closing costs. Or you can even do it on a lease purchase agreement where they just maybe they have two homes, they've already moved, they have two mortgages, they're making two payments, and you know, you're able to supply that debt relief. So that's just a couple different people there.
1: Got it. And how are you able to pay more for the property? Is it because you're not paying another lender for their holding costs and you're just hoping for like inflation to make the payments less and then appreciation on the back end?
0: Yeah, you get both. There's going to be appreciation in most markets right now. Well, I always say when you're able to pay more, you're able to pay full market value or at least fair market value compared to those other well, the circumstances I was just speaking about, which is even if they got full price, then they pay five percent realtor commissions, then they pay, you know, one to two percent closing costs. And then so that's already, you know, a seven to eight percent swing. And then if they don't get full price, now they get 95%. Now that's a 13% swing. So even if you're just paying fair market value, they're still netting more. But also you're okay and you're protected as the investor because you're getting the benefit of principal pay down over the course of the years. So if you're getting a really long-term deal, let's say you're buying the property and you don't have to cash them out until 10 years. Well, number one, it's gonna you're going to go through at least one market swing. So you're fine there. Then you're going to get significant principal pay down. Because again, alluding to like if it's 500 bucks a month, talking six grand a year over 10 years, that's 60K coming off the back end. Now, let's say the market even dips slightly. I mean, you only owe the seller the equity you locked in at the beginning, so you're solely protected there and you're able to still create some great profit on top of you were creating monthly cash flow and we're able to sell it to your buyers for a slight premium as well because they need time as well.
1: Awesome. So what does your day-to-day look like now that you're a full-time real estate investor?
0: So my day-to-day is a mixture of both. I uh, mean, I partner in, in two companies which is our buying and selling entities, so we're 100% in the trenches day-to-day with our own our own uh, real estate investments, but we're also in the trenches with, with our students or our associates, people that we lock arms with. So with our associates, we're actually helping them with outbound calls, negotiating deals and all of that as well. So my day-to-day, depending on the day, I'm a big fan of theming my days because of the different companies and to make sure I time block. But day-to-day looks like either one-to-one coaching calls or speaking with sellers or you know three-way calls and deal negotiation and deal structuring. For our associates to help them continue to do deals. Because right now we're doing roughly 12 to 15 deals around the country per month.
1: Yeah, very exciting. And what are some of the things that you've seen that your new investors are doing wrong? That's a good question.
0: I don't think it's usually the actual items that they do or the actual tasks they do because we have a very particular system that we have set up that works. It's been working for years and years. It's really the expectation and mindset that people come in. So A lot of our associates that come into and are brand brand new are coming from a position of their employees. So being an employee and being an entrepreneur or solopreneur are two totally different mindsets. And you have to learn a whole bunch of new skills in order to eventually make that jump. Because a lot of our associates are looking to eventually go in real estate full time for a number of reasons. Time freedom, you know, financial freedom, or just pure control of their lives. So it's teaching them in them acquiring the skills of an entrepreneur, which are as simple as what we were just alluding to, which is like time blocking, you know, making sure that they set enough time for their priorities and they don't let somebody, you know, hack their life and taking over their time. And then other than entrepreneurial skills, I would say it comes down to, you know, just expectations. I mean, you're learning an entire new business. So if your expectations that you're going to do a deal tomorrow, it's very unlikely as I was just alluding to earlier, which is you're going to start with the basics, you're going to make outbound calls, and then get really good at your scripts in order for you to take it to the next level. And all that stuff takes time. So I would say entrepreneurial skills, not being equipped with them right from the beginning, and expectations as you know, you're entering in a whole new world.
1: Mm-hmm. And you guys also have a pretty uh, successful real estate investing podcast as well. And you've had numerous real estate investing guests. And what are some of the common themes that you see amongst those successful real estate investors?
0: Yeah, I would say it's 100% mindset and personal development for each and every one of them. That and morning routines. There's not a single guest that we've had on our uh, Smart Real Estate Coach podcast that does not have a morning routine. Call it crazy, but now that I'm starting to see more and more of your gurus or your mentors or your experts or thought leaders are producing and, and giving you their morning routines, which is so, so, so important to set up your day in the correct way. And then just constantly working on their personal development mindset, which also you can incorporate as your morning routine.
1: So what are some examples of some great morning routines that you've seen?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So I would get a common theme of most people start on the offense compared to defense. So offense, meaning you start from a place of either gratitude and setting yourself up to win for the day, meaning planning, scheduling working on visionary things, working out, reading things that you are taking care of yourself and being on offense compared to flip side defense, which is starting out answering email. You know, Now when you're on reaction mode for the rest of the day, you weren't able to even get your mindset right or your brain right. And now you went from answering one email at eight o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock in the morning, and now it's 10 o'clock and you haven't done anything productive other than react to emails or make those calls that you know, maybe are not going to be as productive. So I would always start on the offense. So my morning routine, just give you an example, looks like this. I typically will get up about five o'clock in the morning. I will then go to the gym for about an hour. Uh, Once I get out of the gym, I come into the office and I do my vision and planning session, which is I have a vision written on my computer of be, do, halves for not only now, but for the next like 25 years. So who do I want to be? What do I want to do? And what do I want to have? So I go through that after just a quick like five minute meditation to get myself in the right state. And then after that, I plan out my whole day, which I starts from me planning out my entire week on every Sunday night. But make sure because it's so important, especially as you grow that you don't let things get into your schedule that aren't productive, that aren't moving you towards your priorities. So as soon as I do that, I look at my schedule, check it one more time, because usually my executive assistant has set it up, and I just say, okay, all these items that I'm doing today moving me towards my goals, moving towards my priorities right now. And if they are, go, good, going with the day. If they're not, then I remove them from my calendar. And then from there, I work on my major priority projects. So I take an hour, To two, and that way that's all done for about 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. So, usually eight to 10. And then from there is when I take my first call at that point in time, which would consist of either, you know, that's when I get into my day. So, I've already done a ton of offense, a ton of mental prep. Then that's when I dive into my day because as soon as you get into your day, we all know, you know, things go awry. But I know that before I get into that, I've already accomplished something major that's moving me towards my priorities. And I prep myself, you know, mentally and physically for that day.
1: And when do you go to sleep? It depends on
0: the day because I got two small kids. I got a two-year-old and I got a three-month-old. So I go to bed when it's necessary or when I can. But I try to go to bed, you know, like nine o'clock.
1: Okay, cool. But how about your spouse? Does she also wake up at 5 a.m. with you?
0: She actually wakes up. My baby still wakes up at least once a night. So typically once a night. So she wakes up with her. She gets up probably at like six or seven. That's just because you had to wake up at like midnight or one the other day. But she's extremely ambitious herself, so she's usually up with me at you know very very soon afterwards.
1: That's really cool because I used to wake up really early, you know, maybe five forty-five back in the day. But you know now it's winter time; it's really hard to wake up in the morning because it's so cold. And then you figure, okay, I can wake, I can just work till maybe twelve a.m. in the nighttime. But it usually doesn't work out that way, right? Usually at nighttime, you end up doing useless tasks versus waking up early, you are very productive in the morning. I
0: would suggest that you find out what your most productive times are. We have our creative media director who does a lot of our branding and things like that. And he's up to like two o'clock in the morning every night. That's like what his peak time are. He likes to work in the middle of the night. Compared to me, I know my most productive times are like right after I get out of the gym and right early in the morning. So that's why I book my major tasks there. And then Of course, if the day gets away from you, it's extremely important that you've already accomplished something that's going to move you forward, you know, in order to to eventually accomplish your
1: goals. Great. And what are some things that you don't do as a, you know, successful person?
0: Things I don't do. I try not to. I'm definitely nowhere near perfect. I try not to surround myself with any sort of negativity, whether that, you know, my people around me, my core group of people. I would say that's the number one thing I could say I don't do. I'm 29 years old. I'm a work in progress.
1: So pretty good for 29. And I also saw that you use social media a lot for your real estate investing business. I have an Instagram page, don't really do much with it. And I'm trying to figure out how does you know being active on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook help you with real estate investing?
0: Yeah, we use social media, maybe a slightly different, like, I know when you ask that question, people are like, well, how am I going to drive more leads? I tend to use it more for an educational process. Than more of a lead-driven process, which is, you know, the way we buy property and the way we sell property is through creative financing, it's non-conventional. So most buyers and sellers that we speak to, we have to educate in order for them to understand the process and to understand the benefits associated with it, because we can really impact a ton of people, large, large amounts of people, if they understand the benefits. So we just do educational videos on, you know, maybe some Q&A. We also have... On our website, we do a lot of videos that walk buyers and sellers through the process so calmly ask questions and things like that. So I would always use social media, especially as being a real estate investor, to both educate your prospects and then just bring familiarity. There's that rule where people see you, I believe it's seven times. They start to familiarize yourself and then that's when they actually take action. So it's just utilizing and making yourself into that media brand. That way people trust you. Because real estate can be a tricky, tricky industry to work in. There's a lot of people that are doing it. And I would say not everybody is doing it right. So if you can differentiate yourself by, you know, showing your personality, showing your authenticity, because let's say you're wholesaling. I mean, they got 10 other people that are calling them, you know, they're offering the same, roughly the same offer. So if they know you better and you have more authentic presence and they're more trustworthy, that's what I'd utilize my Instagram for.
1: That makes sense because especially what you guys are doing is definitely non-traditional and people might think it's a scam, right? Like how are you selling my house, but not actually paying me for it until later. But then if you have a very big social media presence, they can just educate themselves and decide, eh, this seems like it's going to work for me.
0: Honestly, it doesn't have to be a big social media presence. They just have to know because we're in the day and age where when you hop off the phone, they either Google you and they just want to see that you're either active and you're helping people. So By having other people post like testimonials and things like that, it just starts to ensure them that you're doing the right thing and you're legit and all that as well. So it's just enough. You don't have to be crazy with it. It's just enough to if somebody Googles you that they can see that you're a legitimate business and you're trying to help people.
1: Did you ever face any challenges for being so young in the industry? I've
0: been asked that question quite a few times. And it's an interesting question because that wasn't a paradigm that it had because I used to get that question all the time, which was, you know, they like sellers even, do they take you serious when you show up at the property because you're especially, you know, I started at 25, you know, why would somebody want to sell the property to a 25 year old? And I always said, if you have the right solution to somebody's problem, it doesn't really matter how old you are because you can solve their problem. It just, again, relates back to if you've covered the bases, meaning you understand how you can truly help this person and you can provide the right solution, that doesn't really matter. It's funny, I coach and we have a fantastic associate down in Nashville and he's 21 years old and he's done two different deals down there in Nashville at 21, which is absolutely amazing. So, uh, and then we have another associate who's out in Olympia, Washington. He's on a second deal right now too, and he's 24. So there's younger and younger people coming up within this industry and real estate, which I'm extremely excited about. And they're able to do deals because they're able to provide solutions.
1: That's great. So you can never too young or too old for this business.
0: Absolutely not. You're you're never too young or too old for any business. Like If you're sitting on the fence right now and you either feel you're too young or too old, but your dream or you feel as though real estate is like a place for you to accomplish your goals and your dreams and provide a better lifestyle, then just take action. Go after it. Find what the next best step is and take it because we only get one life. I don't care what your age is. We're all ticking time bombs here.
1: Nice. Do you have any last tips for listeners before we end our show today?
0: Yeah, I'm a huge fan when it comes to making sure that you follow the right steps. Meaning, there's just so much noise out there in this world now. I mean, with podcasts and social media, it's super important that you're following, or definitely following the right people, but also following the right steps. So, my message to you would be: if you're out there and you're trying to figure out what your next step should be and what niche you should be involved in real estate, I'd ask yourself a couple of questions. I would ask yourself, you know, which niche in real estate do I truly want to be a part of? Like I find myself to be successful in. And then number two is who is out there that's actually doing it. So finding a mentor that's actually doing it. At any given time, I usually am paying one to three mentors, depending on which part of my life I'm working on. I'm a huge believer in that. Find out who's doing it and who's in the trenches. And then putting your blinders on and following them. Like Do your due diligence first. And then... Once you found a place you belong and a person to follow, then don't look right. Don't look left and just take action. Get after it. That's what's always moved me forward in my business and certainly can work for you as well.
1: Where do you think people can go and find mentors like this? I
0: mean, they're everywhere now. If you're looking to get involved in in real estate like New England, fast paced, you want to get involved in terms. Well, certainly I'd love to chat with you. But it's easy enough to go to a YouTube channel. I mean, nowadays, it's so easy to get access to mentors, YouTube channel, go read some books, especially in certain subjects in which you're excited about learning about. And then if you're just looking for like a local mentor, go to the local, say if you're in real estate, go to local RIAs, Chamber of Commerce. There's plenty of amazing entrepreneurs out there that are local that are probably right near you don't even know about.
1: Perfect. All right, Zach, how can people get in contact with you?
0: Love to give you guys our Amazon best-selling book. I think that's a good place to get started, as I just alluded to. You know, reading books is certainly a passion of mine. So what I would do is go to newrulesforfree.com. Uh, I don't know if Chris gave this away as well, but certainly take advantage of these books. New Rules for Free. It's our Amazon best-selling book. We'll ship it to you absolutely for free. No shipping. No handling. Nothing. Just go ahead and read the book. I know. Sean's got the book there as well. You Tons of nuggets, tons of action items in there. And a really good view, a great view of both what we do and what other niches are doing as well. There's some other fantastic mentors in that book that we understand. Maybe are not the best fit for everyone, but certainly can make a huge impact on your life if you're ready to rock and roll. So again, that's newrulesforfree.com. And while you're waiting, just head on over to smartrealestatecoach.com forward slash webinar as we host a free webinar where you can go ahead. We go over case studies, how my father-in-law goes over ins and outs of our business. It'll really give you something tangible to act on and to grasp when it comes to our business. So Those two items would be uh, the best place to start. We also just created our new Instagram account at Smart Real Estate Coach. You can also go to our Facebook page, the Smart Real Estate Coach Facebook page, where we do Wicked Smart Sit-Downs, are called, so live Q&As. We also do live trainings on Facebook as well. So tons and tons of resources, our YouTube channel, Smart Real Estate Coach. We produce three to five-plus videos a week there as well. So a lot of great content for you to dive into.
1: Perfect. And we're going to have those links in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcasts. All right, Zach, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, John. Cool. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. If you want to be a successful real estate investor, you need to figure out the systems that other successful investors are using themselves. Working with a coach or a mentor can help accelerate your progress in your investing career. When making cold calls to sellers, use scripts to tweak them over time to fit your speaking styles. At the end of the day, nothing matters without having a strong why work on your habits and mindset, and you will become a successful investor. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. If you live in the Bay area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at Sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.